The title of our message is The King That Carries Our Burdens. We're going to look at an evening scene that uh, we'll come back, we'll backtrack on it in a moment, but let's stand to our feet if you're able to stand with us. We're going to read the last couple of verses together and then we'll, we'll come back and tackle verses 1 through 17. So this is Matthew 8, 16 and 17. It says, When evening came, as the sun was setting, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed, and he cast the spirits out, cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill, and this is, has been Matthew's pattern early in the book of Matthew. He'll go back and tell us how this fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Father, as we think about the ministry of Jesus, we know that we are seeing God. When we, we see Jesus operating, we're seeing the heart of God, the touch of God, the love of God, the truth of God. And thank you that you came down on a rescue mission, Lord, and you came and entered into our pain. And we live in a broken world, and back in the first century, as well as the one we live in, Lord, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and a lot of question marks and and, and we need to know what you have to say about this and how we understand the, the idea of healing. And when people don't get healed, how do we make sense of that? And I pray that you would give us understanding and ears to hear what you would say to your people in this hour. I pray you be glorified in the way it's taught and in the way we respond to it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. There's a couple of bookend uh, passages I want you to see. If you flip back a few pages in your Bible to Matthew 4, 23. So what we have here is kind of a summary of Jesus's ministry leading into the Sermon on the Mount where we've been for the last several Sundays. Matthew 4, 23 puts it this way. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, that's the upper part of Israel, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's our, been our big theme for the book of Matthew and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And it's no surprise that news about him spread throughout all Syria, that's the nation to the north of Israel. They brought to Jesus all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's the 10 cities, and Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So you can see from many different regions, people were flocking to Jesus. And we have a pause in our narrative here from that mission and all that healing going on to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus goes up on the mountain. That starts in chapter 5 and moves us to 5 through 7. And Jesus taught that famous sermon. Warren Wiersbe does a great job laying out kind of big picture strokes in books of the Bible. He says, Matthew chapters one through four is the person of Christ. Chapters five through seven are the principles of Christ or the kingdom. And chapters eight and nine, we're gonna see the power of Christ. We're gonna see uh, 10 miracle accounts in chapters eight and nine, but he does many more miracles than that because we're gonna have some kind of summary text. And this is another one to book in the other side. This is Matthew nine. If you flip over there, a very similar description of what Jesus did, Matthew 9, 35, and it kind of sums up these two chapters that focus on healing and the power of the king. 
It says 935 of Matthew, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. There's that theme again. Healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, Matthew 9:36, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He doesn't say pray that the gospel is more powerful or effective or the kingdom message is more powerful or effective. He says, therefore beseech or pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest, send out more workers into the harvest field. Now back to Matthew chapter eight. We have that summary verse in verse 17. We'll come back to it, but we are dealing with a message called the king that carries our burdens. That's Jesus, the king that carries our burdens. And within the structure of our particular section today, verses one through 17, we have three healing stories. We're gonna see the healing of a leper, the healing of a centurion servant who was a Roman or a Gentile, a non-Jew. And then we're gonna see the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then we're gonna have kind of a summary of all these people flocking to Jesus. We learn from the Gospel of Mark that the accounts that happened before the sun set on this day, it was a Sabbath day. And Jesus was in the synagogue earlier in the day and there was a man who was possessed and Jesus delivered him within the actual building of the synagogue. And uh, this was part of what he did, but it alarmed people when Jesus healed on the Sabbath because the religious elite of the day were concerned that he was maybe breaking the Sabbath and questions went back and forth. And Jesus loved to ruffle the feathers of the religious elite uh, because that's how he was. He wasn't concerned about you know, the ritual. He was concerned about the heart of God, the heart of the law, the heart of people. And so when he had come down, Matthew 8, 1, from the mountain, that is from preaching the famous Sermon on the Mount, great multitudes followed Jesus. We don't know the numbers, but we do know that the Gospels record that at one point he feeds 5,000 plus women and children. And then in another region, he feeds 4,000 plus women and children. And scholars would say the women and children probably represent maybe as much as 15,000 people that had flocked to Jesus and followed him. Now, not everybody's motive was pure. Some people simply followed Jesus for the excitement. Maybe friends were going there. It was the coolest, latest happening. Maybe some people were going hoping for healing, which is completely understandable. You can imagine that, you know, everybody who heard about this, if you had a friend that was sick, if you had a personal uh, health issue, that you would want to do everything you could to, to get to Jesus. And there were great crowds. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, that his deliverance of individuals, if you want to just take a peek at this verse, 12, 28, his casting out of demons, his healing of people. He says these words, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, and he's addressing the religious elite who said he was working according to Satan's power, which was blasphemy. He says, if I cast out 12, 28 demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we're watching the king and the kingdom now operate. We're watching the king of the universe come down to his creation, the ones made in his image, and he is healing left and right. The king comes down. It's a beautiful picture of the truth of what happened in redemption history. The king came down from heaven 
into our broken world. He entered into our pain. He came He became one of us. He lived and moved among us. He was headed to the cross. But as he was doing his earthly ministry, he was relieving burdens. He was compassionate. He was full of mercy and love. He was also full of truth and justice. And he put some people in their place and he annoyed some people. And there were other people that surprisingly Uh, He showed great compassion. And the first healing account is found in verse two. It begins in verse two. And it is a leper who approaches him. Behold, it's as if Matthew says, the camera turns, look, a leper. The Greek word lepra speaks of a disfiguring skin condition. This man came to Jesus and bowed down. Now, a leper in that day carried a disease that would be comparable a few years back to the AIDS uh, virus or the HIV AIDS virus, especially when we didn't know a whole lot about it. Uh, the The terrible, most terrible plight you could have of a physical disease in the history of Israel and in the first century was to contract leprosy. They didn't know a lot about it back in the day, but leprosy would manifest on your skin. It would sometimes show shining spots on your skin. And what it did, it, was, it, it would desensitize, desensitize your nerve endings so that you couldn't really feel pain. So lepers were often missing digits or uh, parts of their ear because they could hurt themselves, burn their hand. An animal could be chewing on their ear at night, and they wouldn't know it because they'd become desensitized to pain. And leprosy was a terrible disease, and it not only desensitized you to pain, but it separated you from the community. What they had is leper colonies. And if you were a leper, you had to live with other lepers separate from, even if you were married, you couldn't be with your spouse, your kids, your immediate family. You had to live in a leper colony. And if you went out in public, You had to cover your face and announce to people that you were unclean. So you'd be walking somewhere perhaps and you had to say, unclean, unclean. And there were people who would keep their distance from you. They didn't want to touch you, breathe the air that you were putting out, whatever it might be. It was a terrible existence and it was really known as an incurable disease. There are two healings of leprosy in the Old Testament. Miriam, Moses' sister, Uh, what appears to be the truth of that text is that she was healed of leprosy. And then there was a Gentile, Naaman, the Syrian commander, who the prophet told him to dip in the Jordan seven times, and he, he was healed of leprosy. But outside of that, we don't really know of a case where someone contracts this terrible disease and then gets healed from it. Although the Old Testament does lay out uh, a ritual or a cleansing process or a Acknowledgement of a healing for a leper in the book of Leviticus. We'll talk about that in a second. So I want you to imagine the scene. You have large crowds here, thousands and thousands of people, and a leper shows up and is moving through the crowds, and he's not supposed to be there. He's not supposed to be that close to people. He's not supposed to you know, expose others to his dreaded disease. And I would imagine filling in some of the blanks that people recognized who he was and were probably screaming at him. Get out of here. Get lost. Get back to that colony. We don't want you here. Don't you expose us to your terrible disease. But no one wanted to touch him either. So nobody roughed him up or pushed him away. And the leper somehow made his way, and maybe it's kind of like the sea parted because people didn't want to be near him, and he came to Jesus. And notice 
he bowed down. The, the Greek word proskuneo is rendered in the New King James Bible as he worshiped him. He was at the feet of Jesus, on his knees, on his face, and he said these famous words, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this is a beautiful act of worship, and I think it's nothing less than worship. And on a side note, I want you to see that Jesus, on multiple occasions in the New Testament, receives worship from people. When you read the book of Revelation, you hear angels say, don't, don't bow down to me, I'm just a fellow servant. And you'll watch the apostles in the book of Acts, don't sacrifice to us, don't bow down to us, we're men like you. But Jesus receives worship which means Jesus is God. You can't call Jesus a good prophet or a good moral teacher as some people do and see him receiving worship and not saying, hey, get up, you're mistaken. No, he receives the worship. And the leper, probably disfigured, probably you know, in very poor health, he would have a hoarse voice because a hoarse voice is a typical manifestation of the disease of leprosy, said maybe something like this, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And there's a beautiful truth in our theology of healing that I want you to understand because we're going to wrestle a little bit with some of the doctrine out there about healing. Does God always heal? And how do we understand disease and suffering and death? And we'll talk about some of that stuff. But I want you to see that the leper, the first portrait of healing of three, had faith but he also bowed to God's sovereignty. Do you see it? If you are willing. Now, I don't believe that it's a cop-out. I believe it's very biblical to pray, Lord, your will be done. Jesus taught that in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the garden, when we get there, Jesus will ask the Father to remove the cup of the cross from him. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Anyone who tries to tell you that praying, you know, praying a fervent prayer, but then praying your will be done as a cop out is uninformed and ignorant of the Bible. It doesn't mean you don't have faith because you pray God's will be done. Let me give you an example. We have a woman in our fellowship who can't come here anymore because she's bedridden and she can't get out of bed and she's been suffering uh, with a paralysis for quite a long time since, since I've known her. But do you know she writes my wife and I cards on birthdays and special occasions. She prays. She ministers to many people, though she can't get out of bed. She may be watching right now. She knows who she is. And I'll just say, do you think that that takes faith? I, I would say that takes more faith than someone who maybe in this crowd got healed but didn't really walk with the Lord afterwards. And do you know that the town where much of this happens, Jesus, it's called Capernaum, he will condemn that city. And he will say, if the miracles that occurred in this city would have occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah or other places, those people would have repented long ago. But you, Capernaum, and he condemns the city where many of his miracles were done. Physical healing does not guarantee that someone's gonna walk with the Lord as king. Walk with the Lord as Lord of their life. Sometimes we just want a quick out. We'll do whatever it takes and then we move on. That's not what the Lord wants for your life. He is compassionate, but ultimately, if you're gonna call God, God, you're gonna have to bow to his will. Lord, would you be willing? 
to make me clean. I know you can, but I understand something about you. I know that you're the king. Uh, you've manifested your power. Your reputation goes before you. Maybe the leper was watching from a distance as Jesus delivered somebody or maybe multiple people. He had faith, but he asked the Lord if you were willing. And you can kind of see a little bit of what his life was like. He was used to being a cast out. He was used to going places, people saying, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Go back to your leper colony. What would the Lord do? I'm sure the apostles were looking on saying, Lord, no, no, don't touch him. He's unclean, Lord, don't do it. But they knew how he was, right? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The guy's disfigured, hoarse, maybe missing limbs or digits. And what does our Lord do? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Before Jesus says anything, before he responds to the inquiry, he touched him. It's a double emphasis here from Matthew. He reached out. He's probably bowed down. Maybe his head is low to the ground and he touched him. And you can hear the Pharisees in the crowd and maybe the apostles, no, no, don't. Because you know what happens? If, if you're a normal person and you touch a leper, you're ceremonially unclean. They pass that uncleanness to you. And then you're supposed to go through this ritual to become clean again. But Jesus reached out and touched him. And notice our Lord. He said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I don't know if fingers grew back. I don't know how his face changed. I don't know how his voice Changed, but some of the movie makers have tried to capture, you know, these images of a leper, you know, messed up from the disease, and then all of a sudden, in a moment of time, he becomes whole again. And Jesus cleanses him. That's the language used for leprosy. It's not really couched as healing. It's, it's couched as a cleansing. And leprosy has been described as an image or a picture of what sin does to us. Sin desensitizes us to God's voice. We get harder and harder, layers on our heart. Sin ultimately is deadly. It's going to kill us. This is why we are sick, why we live in a fallen world, because the wages of sin is death. This is why we get sick. This is why we die, because we sinned against God. We live, sadly, in a situation of a curse because we rebelled against our God, because we wanted to do it our way. And so people left and right were sick around Jesus and something that you just need to kind of put in your pocket for your theology of understanding healing is when Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter five, he picks out a man and he heals him and he says to the man, do you wanna be well? And the man says, yes, but I try to get into this pool and other people beat me there and, and Jesus then heals the man on the Sabbath day. But it would appear that he left a bunch of other people by that pool unhealed. And I, and I bring it up to tell you that while we see these uh, kind of extravagant numbers that Jesus heals left and right and did a lot of healing in certain areas, there were times when he walked by people and he did not heal them. There were times when he left people unhealed. And I don't completely understand the why of that, why some people 
get healed and some people don't. Why I, as a pastor, could pray over someone sick and they recover, and then I could pray over somebody else and they die. But once again, I go back to the words of the leper, if you are willing. And so Jesus stretches out his hand, and he was obviously willing, and he cleansed him. In Hebrews 9.14, we just went through this on a Wednesday night, uh, the blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And when Jesus touches you and heals you of your leprosy, in quotes, the leprosy of sin, he cleanses your conscience. He cleanses your heart. You know, one of the things we really have in our world that doctors will tell you is going on in terms of our mental stuff is that we have, oftentimes our conscience bothers us. And the Bible says that when you encounter Christ Jesus as Lord of your life, not only does he cleanse you of your sin, but he cleanses your conscience. He can relieve a guilty conscience. He can lift burdens from your life. He's the burden-bearing God. And so Jesus touches him. And we might wonder, well, did that guy's pollution come to Jesus? No, Jesus's cleanness came to him. And when Jesus went to the cross, here's how it worked. Yes, Jesus was treated on the cross as though he had committed our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve. God treated him as if he were guilty. But by virtue of his righteousness and his sacrificial death, his cleanness comes to us. And our dirtiness, if you will, went to him, but it doesn't stick with him because he's God and he's pure. And so it wasn't that the pollution came to Jesus, but his cleanness came to the leper. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. <laughs> Don't you love when Jesus says that? Like, come on, really? I was a leper. I mean, you can imagine this guy wants to hug people left and right and be screaming and jumping up and down. Woo-hoo-hoo! Hug me, man. No more leprosy. Let me check. All right. Yeah! And Jesus says, now, I want you to go show yourself to the priest, present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. The them might be the priests. It could be that he'll be welcomed back into his community because he's gone through the ritual. If you're interested, if you really want to do your homework this week, the ritual is laid out in Leviticus 14. I know most of you spend all your devotional time in the book of Leviticus, right? But it's a very thorough process, including sacrifices and water and oil and cleansing. And it's an eight-day ceremony. And this guy would have to go from Galilee, the northern part of Israel, travel down to Jerusalem to the temple, spend days traveling, and then go through this ritual. And I'm sure the priest would be saying, well, how did you get cleansed? And he'd say, there's a guy named Jesus. Let me tell you about him, right? I'm sure it was hard for him not to share the story. Why did Jesus say, don't say anything? Jesus did not come for fame, but he came to fulfill a mission. He wasn't trying to draw large crowds just to draw crowds, but people were flocking to him. But I think it's a reminder that Jesus didn't come to be famous. He came to heal us, to touch us, to enter into our pain. Story number two, when he had come or entered into Capernaum. That was Jesus' adopted hometown. He grew up in Nazareth, but Capernaum became kind of his base of operation. It was known as Jesus' hometown in the New Testament, and it's, uh, I believe, on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, so kind of right in that 
that beautiful area in the northern part. And as he entered Capernaum into the city, a centurion came to him. A centurion was uh, a leader, kind of like a sergeant in the Roman army. And he would be, have 100 soldiers under him, hence the, ter the term centurion. And he came to him, and the, the idea of entreating him is that he, be, he came begging and asking the Lord for help. It would be weird for uh, the friends of the centurion to, to see him as a Roman uh, official going to what they would consider a Jewish peasant. But the Roman didn't care because he had someone sick at home and he had heard the same stories about Jesus and perhaps even seen some of the healings that Jesus did. Now, centurions would be hated by the Jewish people because at this time in history, Rome occupies Israel as an invading force and the people of Israel hate the Romans. But we learn from Luke's gospel that this particular centurion was a good man. He helped the Jewish people build a synagogue and he seemed to be a kind of a pious guy. And so he came to Jesus unabashedly, unashamedly to get help. Let me just say this in passing. If you're worried about what people think about you and that keeps you from following Jesus, just stop it. Because those people aren't gonna stand with you on the day of judgment. Those people are not gonna answer for their lives. If your buddies make fun of you because you've decided to follow Jesus, don't worry about it. Because most of your friends when you're young will be gone anyway. I got news for you. But the friends that stay with you, if they're in a small circle, hopefully they'll love you. Whether they're Christians or not, hopefully they'll become Christians. My point is this. Don't worry about what other people think. Follow the Lord. And so he said to the Lord, the centurion, and I'm sure there were probably some smirks and from both sides of the equation, he said, Lord, notice how he addresses him. He calls Jesus Lord. He was supposed to only call Caesar Lord. But he calls Jesus Lord, he'll say it twice. He says, my servant, it could be my young servant, the Greek allows for either. My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. If you read some of the other gospels, it says that he sent messengers to Jesus. So there's some differing uh, angles of the story. But Jesus said to the centurion, I will come and heal him. One scholar points out that the original language could be in the form of a question. I'll just lay it out to you in case you come across it. It could be rendered this way. Am I to come and heal him? Now, you might say, well, why would someone think that's the language? Well, because it, it can be in the form of a question. And Jesus may be saying something would be very well known in that day. Remember when Peter was invited to the house of Cornelius and he says to this Gentile household, also a centurion, you know it's unlawful for me as a Jew to come into your house. There were ritual concerns and stuff like that in crossing these barriers. And so maybe it's Jesus saying something like, you want me to come to your house? I'm a Jew, you're a Gentile. I'm a Jewish rabbi, you're a centurion. It may be that, or it may be more of a statement. Jesus saying, I will come and heal him. I will cross the line or cross over the boundary. You can see that in the Jewish mindset, especially in the Pharisaical mind or the religious elite of the day, Jesus touching a leper and a centurion servant is the outcast of, the, from their opinion, these are the outcasts of society. These are people that you really have nothing to do with. You might even hate them. But the centurion responded and he said, Lord, 
Second time he calls him Lord, I'm not worthy. Notice his humility. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now people were watching as Jesus touched the leper. And some might conclude, well, he needs to touch people to heal them. Or maybe he needs to be at least within 10, 15 feet. Or maybe he needs to use oil uh, to apply. But the centurion doesn't think any of that's needed. And maybe he's thinking about the practical ramifications of, well, you can't really come under my roof. But whatever it may be, he has great faith. And he just says, Lord, you don't even need to be there. You don't even need to know what he looks like. Just say the word. And oftentimes when I'm praying, that rings in my heart. Just say the word, Lord. Just say the word and healing will occur. Just say the word and you'll change my heart. Just say the word and you'll change my eyes. You'll change this situation. Send your word, amen? The word of God is powerful, living, active. And so the centurion just expresses great faith. And he, he draws an analogy to his own experience in the military. He says, I too am a man under authority, verse nine, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. He understands authority and he sees authority in Christ. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, what, basically what he's saying is, I just said, Lord, if you'll say the word, my servant will be healed. And I have an illustration from military life. My commander, or I say to one of my soldiers, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, do this, and he does it. And I believe you have authority over disease. I've seen it. I've heard about it. Just say it, and that disease will flee. Just say jump, and it will say how high. Amen? Amen. Now that's faith. And that's a non-Jewish centurion who says, I believe that you have this kind of power. And when Jesus heard this, 10, he marveled. Usually Jesus made people marvel. This is, I think, maybe the only time other than unbelief in his own hometown where Jesus marveled. And he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Can you imagine the apostles were here? What do you mean anyone? I'm greater than you. I'm greater than him. I'm greater than anyone in Israel. You see some heads drop in the crowd. Jesus on multiple occasions will say to the apostles, even to Peter, oh, you of little faith. To the centurion, I've not seen such great faith in anyone among the holy people of God. Wow. Let me pause can I ask you, where's your faith today? Would you categorize your faith as great? I know we as believers, we know the verses. All you need to have is the faith of a mustard seed. True. But the Lord does honor great faith. In fact, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you know that? So he wants you to walk by faith, not by sight. Now you can have great faith and it doesn't mean that everything's going to happen, but the Lord does still honor faith, and he wants us to be people of faith. And so he honors the centurion. And he says, I say to you, now turning to the crowd, 
that many shall come from east and west, probably Gentile nations here around Israel, and recline at the table. This is the messianic banquet. You can fast forward to the marriage supper of the lamb, if you will. And they will sit with Abraham. Here's the patriarchs of the nation. And Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that would be the people of God, Israel, shall be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in, if you were a scribe or a Pharisee, and there were some of the religious elite that did follow Jesus, but if you were responsible on the Sanhedrin for getting him crucified, and you rejected him despite the miracles and everything that you knew about him, here's what Jesus said. He said, there's gonna be a great reversal on that day. The Jews used to say that outer darkness and gnashing of teeth was reserved for non-Jewish Gentile people and the outcasts. They're the ones that will be in outer darkness, never the people of God. If I got the birth certificate, if I've got the pedigree, I'm going to heaven, I'm gonna be in paradise. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Unless you repent of your sin, you will not be in the kingdom of God. Yesterday we had a men's conference and we had a big strapping uncle of Sherman uh, and, and he came down from a place called Winslow, Arizona. Yes, it was in an eagle song. Not such a godly song, but you know, there you go. And so he said that he had been pushing God away and he had become a police chief for some 17 years and he was an athlete, 6'4", big old strapping guy and he said that he had come to the end of himself. And he was on a cruise ship and he went out on the deck at night. He was the only one out there. He looked down at the water and he was ready to jump and commit suicide. And he said these words. He said, if I jump right now, nobody will care. This is what the enemy does to our minds. Nobody will miss me. It'll be over. He said he looked down into the darkness of the ocean at night. You know how it can be. And he said, the Lord spoke to him at that very moment. And he said, if you jump right now, that is your eternity. Look down. Take a good look at that water. See the blackness there? You see the the scariness of the water? That's your eternity if you jump right now. Well, he went on to say that he gave his life to the Lord. He's now a pastor today telling other people about the hope of Christ. Amen? Amen? What a beautiful, powerful testimony. Look, you can come to the end of yourself, but it doesn't mean that it's over. Maybe that can be a new beginning for you. Jesus warns that it's not pedigree that gets you into the kingdom. Everybody who believes in Jesus becomes a son of Abraham by faith, right? We know Romans 4, Galatians 3 teach that. So you get grafted into the covenant, if you will. In this case, the new covenant by the blood of Jesus. And so... Jesus gives the warning and then he says to the centurion, go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed, middle of 13, and the servant was healed that very hour. The ESV says that very moment. You can imagine the joy that happened in that Gentile household. It's, a, it's amazing how the branches of Jesus's touch and word affect so many people. I'm sure they told the story and rejoiced for the rest of their lives. The touch, the power of God. And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, Peter had a home in Capernaum. He was in the fishing business with his brother. 
He saw, Jesus saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. This is the third healing, the leper, the centurion's servant, and now Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, Peter was married. That's how you get a mother-in-law, just in case you <laughs> were wondering about that. Let me just say in passing to our Roman Catholic friends who argue that Peter was the first pope and teach that celibacy is what popes have to practice. Well, that's not true of Peter. Peter was married. He had a wife. If you want to write down a cross-reference, write down 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Peter was married. Uh, this tells us something about the life of an apostle, that Peter sometimes brought his wife along, and uh, they had some home life still going on, even though they were on mission with the Messiah. And uh, I'll let you kind of work that out on your own. I say this with all due respect to our Roman Catholic friends, that um, sometimes... The church I grew up in, I was Italian Roman Catholic growing up, has some traditions that are really not anchored in biblical revelation. I don't say it with any disrespect. I just say it that here it is, right? So if the church teaches something that's a tradition that doesn't go with scripture, guess where I'm gonna go? I'm gonna go with the scriptures. So Jesus comes into Peter's house, which was in Capernaum, and there's the mother-in-law lying sick Luke tells us she had a high fever and that she was suffering and that the apostles pointed it out to Jesus. So sometimes when we piece together gospel accounts, we get different views of a situation. Matthew's story is probably a little bit more truncated or shorter. And so Jesus sees her and he touched her hand and the fever left her. In some Jewish traditions, touching a woman, even a woman's hand like Jesus did here, would make you unclean or unholy. According to the Jew Jewish halakha, it forbade touching persons with many kinds of fevers as well. And a religious prayer that Jewish men said each day, something like this, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. I don't know if they capped it in Jesus' name. I don't think they did. <laughs> they didn't believe in, in Jesus. Do you see what Jesus is doing? They might have added, I thank you that I'm not a leper. I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. I thank you that I'm not a slave. I thank you that I'm not a woman. And in every category that they put down, Jesus does what? He reaches out to those people. Why? Because he's saying to the religious elite of the day, you've got it wrong your hearts are wrong. This is not God's heart. And so the Lord reaches out happily to outcasts. Praise the Lord. It's good to sing praises to our God. It's pleasant. Praise is becoming. The Lord, Psalm 147, verse 3, heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to them all. Great is our Lord, abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. You could read Psalm 147, one through five. He builds up Jerusalem, verse two. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. See, the Lord has a heart for outcasts. And no matter what the society says, the church needs to have a heart along the same lines, amen? If we get too stuffy, if we get too religious, if we don't keep our hearts open to outcasts, among, I will count myself among the outcasts, then we have lost sense of our mission. Now we know that God expects things of us, right? We know that he 
accepts us or he loves us right where we are, but he, he's in the changing business. He's not going to excuse our sin. But he loves people who are on the fringes, people who may be dismissed by others. And we've got to be aware of that. Three beautiful accounts. The leper, the centurion servant, Peter's mother-in-law, all kind of crossing boundaries to, I think, confront some of the hypocrisy in the nation. And when evening had come, they brought to him many. This probably happened because it was a Sabbath day and many people were waiting to travel and they were trying to honor the law. When evening had come, when the sun set, that was the beginning of a new day in the Jewish mind. They brought to Jesus many, notice, who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. Mark paints the picture that the whole city was at Peter's door. Can you imagine? Peter had to be thinking, come on, I'm on a graham crackers. Give me a break, right? And people were lined up and it seems like deep into the night, one after the other, after the other, he touched and healed. Come out of him, he delivered a person from demonic possession. He would touch, he would heal, he would touch, he would heal. And into the night, and I'm sure the apostles were watching the compassions of God and thinking, wow, look at him. There's no one faceless to him. He cares about every uh, heart that comes to him. R. Kent Hughes paints it beautifully. He says, the evening approached, as the evening approached, an unmistakable air of anticipation settled over Capernaum. For with the conclusion of Sabbath, the ill and deranged could be carried to Jesus. A delectable tenseness blanketed the town and the countryside as they waited for nightfall. The law said the Sabbath ended when the three stars, when three stars came out in the night sky. And so when the sun had set and the stars were blinking clearly above, the people came and they came and they came and he touched and he healed and he touched. And this all happened, final verse, in order that was, was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself, the Messiah, this is the fourth servant song written 700 plus years before Jesus was ever born. Matthew says, he himself took our infirmities, and this is close to the Hebrew here in Isaiah 53, quoting 53, 4. He took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, the understanding of Isaiah 53, if you've ever spoken to a Jewish friend, you may have used Isaiah 53 to make an argument for the atonement of Christ as being the Messiah. Amen. How many of you have done that before with Isaiah 53? And, and you know that Peter quotes Isaiah 53 and says, by Christ's wounds, we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 and there, Peter's talking about the healing of our souls. He's talking about salvation. The ultimate healing that we need is the healing of the soul. But in Isaiah 53, in Matthew's reckoning of this, he applies it more holistically, if you will, applying it not only to salvation, as Peter does, but to physical healing. What are we to make of that? Well, let me paint a, a picture just briefly for you. In some, what I would call hyper-Pentecostal circles, you'll hear people say something like this, healing is guaranteed in the atonement. And they'll say that when Christ died on the cross, not only did he die for your sins, but he died for your diseases and sicknesses. And healing is guaranteed in his death. 
and resurrection. Therefore, whenever you pray with enough faith, you're going to be healed 100% of the time. Just like you would be healed if you call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, well, you'll be healed if you call upon the name of the Lord for sickness. And this is their view. And they will even say, and perhaps some of them well-meaning will say something like this. They'll come to someone who's sick, suffering for a long time. Maybe multiple people have prayed for them and they'll say, you know, if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. Healing is guaranteed in the atonement. And I will say that's not only false, but that lacks compassion. If you take careful note of the flow of the verse and the context, Matthew is not saying that Isaiah 53, 4 was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. He says that Isaiah 53, 4 was fulfilled in the healing ministry of Jesus as he moved around Capernaum and Galilee, down into Jerusalem, as he went around doing good, Acts 10, 38, Isaiah 53, 4 was fulfilled. Everybody with me? Not at the cross, but at the healing ministry of Jesus. As he touched people, delivered them from demonic possession, delivered them from illness and sickness, opened the eyes of the blind, unstuffed the ears of the deaf, etc., Isaiah 53, 4 was fulfilled in the healing ministry of Jesus. The further fulfillment that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed is salvation at the cross and the resurrection. That's the atonement. That's the healing guaranteed in the atonement, the healing of our souls, not the healing of our bodies. That was fulfilled in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, here's why this is important. Because when we pray for somebody, God may heal them. I, I could share with you multiple firsthand accounts where I know someone was prayed over and healed. And I praise the Lord for every one of those. And I thank God for times that maybe he's healed my body and I didn't even know it. I believe the Lord can and does heal. But I do not believe that everybody that you pray for is going to be healed. I believe it's ultimately under the sovereign canopy of God. I do believe he honors faith, and I believe that's important. But ultimately, we're all gonna die of our last disease. Some of you say, no, I'm dying of natural causes. Okay, maybe a few of you will. But you're still gonna die. <laughs> you're, saying, you're like, Pastor Michael, bummer. Well, you know, you guys know this is reality. And let me just say that there's three things you need to have in your theological pocket. You have to have a theology of healing, a theology of suffering, and a theology of death. Because we're gonna encounter all three. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, was suffering, asked the Lord to remove it three times. The Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Timothy had frequent stomach ailments, and Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach, for your frequent stomach ailments. Why didn't Paul just say, you're healed? Surely Paul had the gift of healing, right? He wrote about the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. How could he leave somebody sick? In 2 Timothy 4.20, if you're taking notes, he left Trophimus sick at a certain city. Why didn't Paul heal Trophimus? Because healing is not guaranteed. It's still under God's sovereignty. And sometimes people suffer 
according to the will of God. Why? I don't know. But Job suffered. Paul suffered. Timothy suffered. And Jesus suffered. And if Jesus suffered, then do I think I'm going to be, you know, kept from all suffering in this world? No, we're in a broken world. And sometimes the Lord does graciously heal, and other times he allows suffering. And I wish I could fill in all the the blanks for you, because I have questions of my own. Like, Lord, why? I don't understand. I don't know why. I know some of you right now, you have a loved one suffering. Maybe you are suffering. You know, as I get older, when I get together with people about my age, you know what we talk about? Hip hip replacements, (laughs) knee problems say something like this. Do you ever get a pain? (laughs) And somebody responds, that's the only place it doesn't hurt. Come on. That was Indiana Jones for you. Anyways, here's my point. We are denying reality, and I believe that we're denying biblical truth if we have a false view of healing. We have to have a balanced view of healing. And when we pray, let's pray in faith and know, Lord, I believe you can. I don't know if this is your perfect will right now like the leper, but, but if it is, please heal this person. And I'm gonna keep on praying. But I, I think having that balance is very important. And if someone gets that wrong, I think, one, they might be confused on their theology, and two, they may lack compassion and I would be careful in making blanket statements to people because the Lord may put you on your back to teach you a lesson. <laughs> so I know people mean well, and sometimes they don't quite understand. But we got to be careful that we don't, we don't start making blanket statements because it's easy to make statements when you're not the one going through it. And to make judgments about people's faith or lack thereof. And I'm just saying as a church, what we really need the wisdom of God as we approach these things. We're going to have a moment of communion. Just bow your hearts with me for one moment. Thank you, Father, for this text before us. And one of the main takeaways we see here is Jesus's compassion, the compassion of the king, our burden-bearing God. And I thank you that you entered into our pain some 2,000 years ago, and you healed because I believe you're full of compassion. I believe you healed as signs and symbols, but I think you also healed because you love and you wanted to relieve people's burdens. And I thank you for who you are. And the biggest burden we carry, Lord, the reason we get sick is because of sin. The reason we die is because of sin. And I pray that you would be delivering those who can hear my voice right now from the ultimate virus, which is the sin virus, and the healing is available. All we've got to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Would you just take a moment? If you're not sure you're a Christian, you're not sure that you follow the king, repent of your sin and trust what Jesus did for you. He died on the cross, treated as if he had committed all of your sins, my sins. He suffered. He defeated death. He rose from the dead. And he is asking you right now to place your faith in him. You don't have to know everything, but you just need to know his love for you and trust him and he'll he'll start doing the work in your life. If you need to rededicate your life, this would be a beautiful time to do so. Ask him to save you. You don't have to have perfect words. Ask him to restore you. 
to get you back in the game if you've been on the sidelines. And pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.